What do you know about purgatory? Purgatory, it's a belief within the Roman Catholic Church. It's a location, actually. Uh, Not quite heaven, definitely not hell. It's a place of further purification that a soul will go after they die until they're allowed entrance into heaven. Now, the Roman Catholic Church actually didn't recognize purgatory as an official doctrine until the Council of Lyon in 1214. But it wasn't until the time of the Protestant Reformation and a man named Johann Tetzel, maybe you've heard of him, he and Martin Luther kind of did this just a little bit, um, where purgatory and the corresponding indulgences really came front and center. Now, within the Catholic Church at the time, an indulgence was uh, something that someone could buy in order to uh, set one of their family members free from purgatory, to shorten their time in purgatory. It was something that a living person did on behalf of the dead to help them move from purgatory into heaven. But Johann Tetzel, he was the fundraiser of the Catholic Church. And he decided to over-exaggerate indulgences so that they could build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And he came up with a very catchy phrase, a jingle. I'm sure people were singing it. It went like this. As soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. And it was with that jingle that Johann Tetzel helped raise millions upon millions upon millions of dollars, really building St. Peter's Basilica, which in today's money would cost billions of dollars to build. But he capitalized on the idea of purgatory, helping a family member or friend (laughs) paying money so that they could get to heaven faster. Now, how would we respond theologically to the idea of purgatory, that temporary holding place for purification until you make it to heaven? Well, purgatory is not what we call a biblical concept. It's not in the Bible. It's mentioned in the book of 2 Maccabees, which is part of the Apocrypha. It's not part of Scripture. The Catholic Church didn't recognize that it was part of Scripture until uh, the Council of Trent following the Protestant Reformation. But when we look at Scripture, it doesn't reconcile with the idea of purgatory because salvation is a free gift. So we see in Romans 2, 8 and 9, it's not of our own works. It's a gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, not by works so that no one can boast. Additionally, purgatory would make the sacrifice of Christ ineffective or at least not completely effectual for those who uh, trust in Christ. In the words of a very famous theologian, I bet you've probably heard of him. Uh, His name is Hitch. It makes uh, salvation kind of like this. I go 90, you go 10. You know the quote I'm talking about, right? In other words, Jesus does 90% and then we have to do that last 10%. Is that how salvation works? (laughs) No. Jesus did all the work and we respond to his work through repentance and faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe in purgatory, at least not in an eternal sense. But I certainly believe in purgatory in an earthly sense. Because think of the definition, a temporary holding place until someone makes it to the the real thing, heaven. To me, that sounds like an institution that we're far too familiar with. Dating. Dating is purgatory. (laughs) Dating is uncomfortable. Dating is forced. Dating forces a Christian couple to try to walk the fine line of purity while facing temptation. It gets harder and harder as you go. Now, don't take my analogy too far. I am not trying to say that marriage is heavenly bliss. Certainly, in my experience, marriage is way better than dating. But marriage is not a walk in the park. It takes work. It takes effort. 
But marriage has something that dating will never have, real commitment. Because in a dating relationship, what's holding the man or the woman's feet to the fire? (laughs) Nothing. Either party, either person could say, bye, at any time. They could just leave. But when someone's married, there's that commitment before the Lord that they're going to be faithful to one another for the rest of their life. There's not that commitment in dating. But you flip that around, dating actually takes some investment. It takes some commitment, which is kind of frustrating. Because in order to see if the relationship is going to work, you got to put some time and some effort and some money and uh, some emotions into the relationship. And on the backside of a relationship, I mean, if you've ever put in that time, that money, that effort, and a multi-month or multi-year relationship just doesn't work out, all you want to do is rewind and get that time, that effort, that emotion back. And if that's you tonight, if that's been you or that is you, I'm so sorry. I wish we could go back in time and take that time back, but we can't. But I can think of one solution to the problem of dating, and I'm sure you all sign up for it. It's called arranged marriages. And Fritz would be happy to do the arranging. (laughs) That'd be terrifying. Do we want that? No, we don't want that. But actually what we want is we want the Lord to appear to us in a dream before we start dating someone. And I want to hear, Sam, I want you to go marry Hannah. Come on, I'd sign up for that. That sounds great. It would remove all the pain, all of the headaches, all the frustration that comes with a dating relationship. That would be the easiest. But since when is the Christian life easy? (laughs) It's not. God hasn't called us to an easy life. He hasn't called us to the path that's the simplest, the one that's free of headaches. But what God has promised is that he'll use the frustration, he'll use the headaches, he'll use the pain for our glory, or for his glory and for our sanctification, not for our glory. Please forget I just said that. God wants to use dating to grow our holiness. So tonight, we get to talk about dating. And there's a number you hear tonight that have that metal ring on your finger and you're married. Maybe some of you are engaged. Well, congratulations, you've made it through purgatory. And it'd be easy for you to tune out this message and think, man, this doesn't apply to me. Well, I think it does for at least two reasons. First, many of you, if not all of you, someday are going to have kids. And it is not too soon to start thinking through what your family's philosophy of dating is going to be. To me, the idea of parenting teenagers sounds absolutely horrifying. So let's pray Matthias never grows up. (laughs) But second, and more importantly, a lot of the principles we're going to talk about tonight don't just apply to a dating relationship. They apply to all of us. So I think a lot of this is going to apply. And on the other side of the spectrum, a lot of you here tonight are single. You're not in a relationship. And you think, well, since I'm not dating, this definitely doesn't apply to me. Now is the best time to prepare our hearts for the relationship that's coming down the road. Um, so I think there's going to be some, some things in our talk tonight for all of us. But to start, I think it's important for us to define dating um, so that we can make sure that we're on the same page. Here's how I would define it. Dating is a mutually exclusive relationship between a man and a woman with the purpose of finding a spouse. It's a mutually exclusive relationship between a man and a woman with the purpose of finding a spouse. So it's pretty clear based on my definition, I don't believe in casual or leisurely dating. I think dating has to come with the purpose of trying to find someone uh, that the Lord might be calling us to marry someday. I think that's important. 
Now, there's some of you that might use the word or prefer the word courting instead of dating. Maybe use the word courting uh, in a sense of only hanging out with each other's families or always hanging out in groups. That's just fine. For the sake of our conversation tonight, I'm going to use the word dating, though I certainly think our principles are going to apply to a courting or group dating or a dating sort of a context. But if you have your Bibles, we're going to start with the most important verse on dating in all of Scripture, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Towards the back in the New Testament, right after the book of Romans, before 2 Corinthians, allow me to read 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. I'll be reading out of the ESV. And the Apostle Paul writes this, 1031. So whether you eat or drink, and whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Did you find dating in that verse? (laughs) I certainly didn't. Because this is one of those life verses that kind of fits underneath the umbrella for every follower of Christ. That our call is to glorify God. The word glorify, the word glory means splendor, honor, or majesty. To put it in the words of the Westminster Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the purpose for which God has placed us on the earth, to bring glory to him, to worship him. And worship is so much more than a a song that we sing and raise our hand on a Sunday morning. No, worship is the way that we live our life, by ascribing worth, by ascribing glory to God, by reflecting his glory to the world around us. That's what it means to worship God. But I think some of us like to uh, place God in this little box. And and we open up our little God-sized box on Sunday mornings and on Monday nights when we come to young adults. And maybe for 10 minutes when we have quiet time a couple days a week before we go to work. But that's about it. And we don't let our relationship with God influence the rest of our time during the week. But that's not how it works when we become a Christ follower. God doesn't just get a slice of the pie. God gets the entire pie. Our entire life is his, and we have to glorify God through everything that we do, not just through what we do at church and what we do on a Sunday morning. So what's the purpose of dating? To glorify God. So that's our big idea tonight. You can write this down in your handouts if you want. We need to make the main thing the main thing. Make the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, in our culture's sense, what's the main thing in a relationship? Well, it's certainly the other person. That's the most important person in our life in terms of our culture's view of a successful relationship. Now, that's certainly true a point, right? I mean, look at Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. The submission, the sacrifice, uh, the service that comes in a successful marriage relationship. Certainly, we have to think of the needs of the other person before our own. But we can't stop there. Because even when we're in a relationship, whether it's dating, engaged, or married, the most important person in our life is not our significant other. The most important person in our life is the Lord. He takes the first chair. 
But what happens often in a relationship is instead of looking to God for our worth and our value and our satisfaction, our identity, we'll start looking to our significant other and our worth and our identity and our contentment and our value is all wrapped up in them and what they think of us and and how the relationship is going so that when the relationship is going well, we're doing great. And when the relationship is not going well, then we're not doing well. And what we've done is we've placed that individual in the place of God in our hearts giving our significant other a job description that they actually can never fulfill. Because when we expect our boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, spouse, to fill the place of God in our life, they won't succeed. And it's going to lead to frustration and anger and discontentment and brokenness within a relationship that over years is going to lead to great problems. God needs to be first in our hearts, not just when we're dating, but before we start to date. And practically, this means that as a Christian, you should only date or marry another Christian. That's clear in 1 Corinthians. Paul tells us not to be unequally yoked. But I think it's even deeper than that. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Our life is built on the foundation of glorifying God. Now, if we're going to date or marry somebody who doesn't know Christ, then their life is built on a radically different foundation. So when someone comes up to me who proclaims or professes to be a Christian, but they're not dating someone that knows Christ, I don't want this to sound harsh, but to me it reveals that they're probably not as serious about their relationship with God as they think they are. It's vital for a follower of Christ to be aligned in purpose when they look at a potential spouse. That's important for us uh, to realize. So how do we date to the glory of God. We've got to keep him central in all areas of our life. We need to put him in the first chair. So with the rest of our time, I want to be practical. I want to share some wisdom on maybe how we can apply this, how we can date to the glory of God. It's, this is the wisdom that I've learned over the years from talking, from listening, and from making my own mistakes. <laughs> so I wish that... Um, you know, I was the dating expert, but I'm not. Um, actually, I don't wish I was the dating expert. That sounds terrible. But I'm just going to share some wisdom that I've learned over the years. I'm sure that this list could be longer, but I'll just share nine ideas tonight. Here's the first. Be consistent. Be consistent. And let me explain what I mean with a story. <laughs> in one relationship that I was in, it wasn't Hannah. It was before Hannah came along. Um, I believe that the foundation... Uh, one of the important uh, tools in that relationship would have been authenticity and vulnerability. So even before we started dating, I decided that I was going to share some struggles that I had, some deep stuff in my heart with uh, this young woman, because I wanted her to know me. I wanted to be vulnerable. I wanted the relationship to be authentic. But what happened is even though I shared some of those things before we were dating, here's what she heard wow, Sam is really serious about this relationship. Sam really thinks that this is going somewhere. Sam really thinks we're going to get married. And I communicated uh, a level of far more seriousness than we were at that point. And what that did is actually put us on two completely separate planes in our relationship. She thought I was way more serious than I was, even though all I was trying to do was be authentic and vulnerable. And that led to a lot of conflict and tension and a roller coaster five months (laughs) to a relationship that did not work. But I made a huge mistake. I was not 
consistent. The depth of our emotional connection, a a physical connection, even a spiritual connection, needs to reflect the depth of a relationship. I dove into the deep end, and that was a mistake. Instead, we've got to peel back the layer, the onion, one layer at a time, instead of chopping the onion in half. And here's what that looks like practically. We've got to be consistent physically. Let's say the boundary in a dating relationship stops at kissing. You shouldn't kiss in the first week of your relationship. Because where are you going to go during the next, I don't know, two years until you're married? There's nowhere to go. Think spiritually. A spiritual connection is really strong. It's really deep. And it's important for a dating couple to have that sort of a connection. But in the first week or two of your relationship, you probably shouldn't pray together for 30 minutes every day. Do a Bible study together. Share what God's uh, doing and reading a, a book and doing a couple devotionals together. Right? That's a lot. Instead, maybe start a relationship by just sharing what God's been teaching you in his word and spending a little bit of time praying together and over time begin that couple's devotional or doing a Bible study. Think about what this means emotionally. The depth of conversation for two individuals that have been dating for a week or two should be far more shallow than an engaged couple or a married couple. We want to be consistent We want to take incremental steps in the depth of our relationship rather than jumping in the deep end. Now, don't swing the pendulum so far in the other direction. Gentlemen in particular, don't use this as an excuse not to peel the onion at all. Don't use this as an excuse to be emotionally dishonest. Instead, we've got to work incrementally. And maybe that means something like this early on in a relationship, sharing something like, you know, there's some things in my past, there's some things I've struggled with that we're going to have to talk about at some point but I'm not ready to have that deep of a conversation today. But I want you to know that God's done a great work in my heart and I'm thankful for his faithfulness. Maybe that means having a conversation like that early on to give a clue that there's a conversation coming down the road. That leads to our second point. Um, And here it is. Pursue personal purity before dating. We could probably talk about this for the rest of our time. Um, And of all of the principles tonight, I think this might be the most important, but this is also the one that grieves me the most because of the amount of individuals that I know who have tolerated sin, who have been blinded by their own sin in their life, who've justified the presence of sexual sin to their own detriment and to the detriment of their relationship. And I think that's what we see the opposite of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Just allow me to read that. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God's will that we abstain. The nuance in the Greek is, is that we flee, that we run away from even the hint of sexual immorality, the hint of temptation in our life. This is important both in a relationship, but it's also important individually. And it's easy for people to justify the presence of sexual sin in their life by thinking something like, you know, everybody's doing it. It's just not that big of a deal. Or it doesn't happen that often. It's not every day. Or it's just a personal struggle. So I don't, I don't really have to talk about this. I don't really need to get serious about this in my life. It's not affecting everyone else. Or how can God give me these desires and not expect me to fulfill them? That would just be unfair and unjust. Friends, those are lies from the enemy. We have to run away fleeing at even the thought of temptation. Because here's the deal. 
every single one of us in the room tonight is sexually broken. None of us are perfect in this area of our life. But it's vital for us to get this part of our life cleaned up before we enter into a dating relationship for at least two reasons. First, if someone is given into sexual sin in their life and they're entering into a relationship, it's going to be way easier to cross physical boundaries within that relationship. To be blunt, if an individual is watching people fornicate on a screen, it's going to be way easier to do the same exact things with a significant other. A significant other. But second, sexual sin is never personal. It isn't. Now, certainly it's a severe sin because we're sinning against our own bodies. We see that in 1 Corinthians 6, but it's broader than that because sexual sin has public, corporate consequences. Even past sin can have present consequences. And maybe I can illustrate that with a story. A friend of mine from college met a young woman, very excited about the relationship, very excited about dating this young woman. And they had just started dating. They'd been talking a month or two. And she asked him a question that every boyfriend or girlfriend should ask, probably not in the first week, but definitely within the first year of a relationship. And she said this, point blank, when was the last time you looked at pornography? And this young man answered honestly, he had just gotten serious about his struggle when they started talking. It had been a month or two. And she was visibly shaken. She was frustrated. She was angry at the recency of the struggle in this young man's life. And it took him months to pick up the pieces. The relationship was this close to falling apart. I'm surprised it didn't, honestly. This topic grieves me because I'm concerned that there's some here tonight who don't understand the magnitude, who don't understand the seriousness of a struggle with sexual sin and how a struggle today, even though it feels secret, even though it feels personal, even though it feels like it's not affecting anybody else, can have so serious consequences down the road that can destroy a future relationship. If that's you tonight, it's time to get serious about this struggle. It's time to stop dabbling with sexual sin. And this is a struggle that is nearly impossible to overcome alone. Find somebody that you trust. Reach out to a mentor. Reach out to a church leader. Reach out to somebody that you trust to talk about these things and work through these struggles together. Now, there's some of you here tonight, engaged, married, might be thinking, ah, it's too late. I haven't gotten this area of my life cleaned up yet, and I'm already married. What do I do? It's never too late. Get serious today. God wants to heal you. He wants to rescue you. He wants to restore this area of your life. Start today. But it starts by reaching out for help. So that's our second. Here's our third point tonight. Along the same lines, create and follow healthy boundaries. Create and follow healthy boundaries. Now, for a dating couple, uh, there's two very common mistakes that they'll make in terms of creating healthy physical boundaries. Here's the first. They'll have boundaries in their mind, but they actually won't talk about it. Because it's awkward. It's awkward early on in a relationship to say something like, um, 
you know, what do you think the physical boundary should be in our relationship? I don't want to go past X. Are you comfortable with that? It's uncomfortable, but it's a conversation we've got to have. Guys, you have to lead in this department. Have that conversation early on in a relationship. That's a mistake. Just don't communicate their boundaries. But second, uh, Christian couples often set the bar way too low. Where I'll ask what they're, if they have boundaries, and they'll say, yeah, we have boundaries. And they'll say, well, yeah, our boundary is not sleeping together. <laughs> and, and half of me wants to say, well, yeah, great, I'm really glad you have that boundary. The other half of me will say, well, there's a lot of sin that leads up to ultimately sleeping together. And we've got to move the bar over here. We've got to raise the bar. When I think of two passages in Scripture that might help us understand where that line, where that boundary should be, one that comes to mind is Song of Solomon 8, verse 4, where Solomon writes, I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That's a refrain that Solomon includes three times in his tiny little book. Don't awaken love until it pleases. What Solomon is saying is, is don't think about things, don't fantasize about things, don't do things or participate in things that are going to stir in you a sexual desire that cannot be fulfilled. And the only context for those desires to be fulfilled is within marriage. And the farther along the line we get in terms of physical boundary and relationship, the more those desires are stirred within our heart. Be careful not to awaken, to stir love in your heart, stir that sexual desire before there's the context to fulfill it, marriage. Here's another verse that I think should help inform purity within a relationship. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, verse 2, Paul is telling Timothy uh, how to treat people in the church, and he says, treat young women as sisters in all purity. Which is basic, but it's mind-blowing. That as followers of Christ, even before we enter into a relationship with someone, we're brother and sister in Christ. So when you're in a dating relationship, you've got to treat the other person as a sibling in Christ. As I think about maybe a principle on maybe where a boundary should be in a dating relationship, here's a question I like to ask or suggest. Don't do anything with your significant other that you'd be embarrassed to tell their future spouse. I think that might help identify where that line should be in a relationship. Guys, lead in this area. Have that conversation early. Set clear boundaries. Fourth, be inclusive, not exclusive. Oh, man, I see this happen all the time in dating relationships. When I was in college, I was single for almost all of college, and I was what I called myself the backup quarterback. Here's what I mean. I'd have friends in my dorm that were single and they'd hang out with me and then they'd start dating and they'd find a relationship and I wouldn't see them for three or four months and then they would get dumped and then they'd come back into my room and they'd be sobbing and I would counsel them and then we'd be hanging out again. And they'd only spend time with me when they weren't dating. And I, I kind of got sick of it. You can tell I'm still a little bit bitter. <laughs> it's important in a dating relationship to be inclusive, not exclusive. We talked about this last week. We need friendship, or two weeks ago. We need friendship. We need community. We need relationships with people. That's important when we're single. It's important when we're dating, when we're engaged, when we're married. We need to live within Christian community. But when a couple starts dating, they can be so excited about that relationship that become a Velcro couple. They only spend time with each other, and they don't spend time in community. When that relationship starts, make it a priority to spend time with your friends. Don't neglect your friends when you start a relationship. Don't 
neglect your friends when you get married. We still need that community. And that leads to our next point. Watch out for infatuation. Maybe you watched the movie Bambi as a kid when some of you are probably too young for that. Um, but the owl was teaching Bambi about what it means to be Twitter-pated. Twitter-pated and infatuation are the exact same thing. And it looks a little bit like this. It's a relationship through a rose-colored glasses. It's being struck with love, obsessed with the other person, to the point of being completely blind to everyone and everything else, turning their weaknesses into strengths, ignoring potential flaws and failures and red flags of the other person. I've seen many people make a dumb mistake during the infatuation stage of a relationship, but when that stage ends, the bottom falls out and they're left to pick up the pieces. Now, infatuation is a thing. Sometimes it lasts two days, sometimes it lasts two years or somewhere in between. And likely it'll happen in a relationship in your life if if it hasn't happened already. And for those of us on the outside, it's pretty easy to spot someone who's infatuated. (laughs) They're drunk with love. The relationship is a Velcro couple. It's exclusive. It's obsessive. They spend disproportionate amounts of time together. They don't find any flaws in the other person. We can see a lot of red flags, but the individual is blind to them. So before you jump into a relationship, understand the danger of infatuation. Don't listen to Disney. Don't follow your heart. Because early on in a relationship, there's going to be this desire to spend every waking moment with the other person, to spend every evening together, to spend three hours a night FaceTiming each other, FaceTiming each other, to only spend time with each other. Don't always follow your feelings. Just because you desire to do something doesn't mean that you should follow through with that desire. Be disciplined and be measured to not spend every night or every evening together, to still spend time with other friends, to spend time in community, to still have time alone, to guard against that infatuation. Even a step beyond that, it's important for us to let people into our life that we trust and say something like, you know, I'm about to dive into this relationship and I want your feedback. I want you to kind of have my back. And if you notice a blind spot, if you notice a weakness, if you notice something that I'm not picking up that I should know, I want you to tell me. Sometimes we need a brother or sister or a parent or a mentor or a small group leader to help provide some wisdom to help us guard against infatuation. Here's the next principle. Communicate, communicate, and communicate. I need it three times because I'm bad at communication. And guys, historically, we're just not the best. And I hope you're better than me. I want to share a story about a time that I failed at communication with Hannah. Right as we started to talk, we, uh, it was after a third Monday worship service, drove down the hill, went to Bricks, and that's when we had the famous DTR, define the relationship. And I said that one phrase that every Christian says, I like you. And we confessed our interest in one another, but there was a bit of a wrinkle in the early stages of our relationship. Six weeks later, Hannah was traveling to South Africa for a three-week vision trip as she was praying about becoming a full-time missionary to South Africa, right as we started to talk. So here's what I thought I said in this conversation at Bricks. I thought I said, I'm really interested in a relationship, but I want to wait to date 
I want to wait to label this as dating. I, I don't want to date yet until you get back from South Africa because I don't want to get in the way of what God's doing in your life. Here's what Hannah heard. Let's start dating. Let's just not call each other boyfriend and girlfriend. Those two things are about as far apart as Hannah and I were as we were in South Africa and Wausau. <laughs> and that led to a tumultuous couple of weeks. Um, and if you want the rest of the story, you'll have to ask Hannah later. She'll be glad to tell you. That was my fault. Total communication fail. Guys or girls, if, <laughs> if a significant other or if people keep coming up to you, asking for a DTR, asking to define the relationship. That means either one, you're not communicating clearly, or two, you're leading people on. It's so important for us to communicate clearly in a relationship. It's not easy, but here's a couple principles that might help. We've got to learn to listen. <laughs> We're just bad listeners. And partially it's because of our phones. I'm not a good multitasker. Chances are you're probably not either. And we're not going to have a good conversation if we both have our phone in our hand. It's also a bad idea to have important conversations virtually. Don't have an important conversation over text, Snapchat, Instagram, Marco Polo, whatever else you're using. It's important to have important conversations face to face. We've got to manage expectations and make sure that we're on the same page. Err on over-communication rather than under-communication. Ask good questions, get to know one another. Communication is key for a successful relationship. And we can talk about that for a long time. But we'll move on to number seven. Resolve conflict quickly. Resolve conflict quickly. There's a passage I appreciate in Ephesians 4. Paul writes this, verses 26 and 27 of Ephesians 4. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. It's an interesting verse. You already said, be angry and do not sin. So there's a difference between anger and sin, which I guess makes sense. Jesus overturned the tables in the temple. We see passages in scripture talking about God being angry. So anger isn't sin, but how we respond to the feeling of anger can either be sinful or righteous. I might feel angry that the Bucks lost game one and two of the finals, but if I were to chuck my remote at my TV, that would be sin, right? How we respond to the feeling of anger will determine whether we sin or we don't sin. And if we're being honest, in a relationship with another person, there's going to be some days of frustration. There's going to be some feelings of anger. And if it hasn't come in your relationship yet, it will come. But how we respond to those feelings is vital. And Paul gives us the key. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't go to bed angry. Don't let your head hit the pillow with feelings of bitterness and anger and frustration towards your significant other. And it starts with a conversation with the Lord by saying, God, I forgive so-and-so for how they've sinned against me. I'm not going to be angry about this. I'm going to forgive. And then it continues with a conversation, not over texting, but face-to-face, -face, resolving that conflict. Because when we don't resolve conflict and we let it fester, it builds up bitterness in our heart. And when we have bitterness in our heart, we close our heart off and it's easy for us to not even allow ourselves to be loved by that person anymore. What happens over years and years is bitterness is basically just sweeping conflict under the rug. And that pile grows higher and higher and higher until it rears its ugly head and causes major consequences within a relationship. Don't allow conflict to go unresolved. Fix 
the conflict, resolve the conflict, don't go to bed angry, don't hang on to bitterness. That's number seven. Here's number eight. Find ways to serve together. Find ways to serve together. You have no idea how many couples that I know that have met by serving at a Christian camp together, by going on a mission trip together, by serving at church together. It is unreal. But within a relationship, it's important to find a way to serve together. And you can build that common foundation. You can have that camaraderie. Now, if you're single, you want to find a spouse? Serve. Come to Mexico with us. Work at a Christian camp. Serve at our VBS and at the Wausau campus in two weeks. Now, is finding a spouse the number one motivation of serving? No. It's probably not in the top ten. So don't hear me say that that's the number one motivation for serving. However, when we're in the trenches, when we're fighting together for the sake of the gospel, hand in hand, working together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, every once in a while you'll look over your shoulder and think, huh, I wonder if that could work. And the rest is history. It's a great reason to serve the Lord. Finally, never stop dating. If you're dating, if you're engaged, you're married, never stop dating. It's a great one for us to finish with tonight. Because think of the things that we practice when we're dating relationship. We assume the best. We provide the benefit of the doubt. We go on fun adventures and we go out of our way to get to know the other person. We ask good questions. We spend time with each other's family and, and try to get to know each other's interests. There's this nature of being inquisitive and there's this excitement. Friends, those are all things that shouldn't happen the day you get engaged or the day you get married. Keep dating your fiance. Keep dating your spouse. Have fun together. Get to know one another. Ask deep questions. Never stop dating. Well, here's the deal. If we date for the glory of God, if we keep the main thing, the main thing, dating doesn't have to be purgatory. It can be a great tool for God to grow us into the people that he desires us to be. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful to be together tonight. We're thankful for your word and just how it can speak truth into kind of a unique institution within our culture Father, help us understand that you want us to glorify you in all areas of our life, which includes a dating relationship. Uh, so, Father, for those that are single tonight, may they find their contentment, their satisfaction in you. And may you be preparing in them uh, a desire um, to pursue you with their whole heart as they look ahead to whatever relationships you might have for them in the future. Uh, for those in our midst tonight that are dating, may they walk in purity toward one another. May they walk in holiness. May they place you as the most important person in their life. And may you be the foundation of their relationship. Father, for those that are engaged to be married here tonight, keep them uh, pure. Keep them strong. Allow them to look forward with anticipation to the day when they'll get to be married. And for those tonight who are married, uh, Father, preserve and protect and grow those marriages. May they be a picture of the message of the gospel. So as we take some time to dialogue in our small groups tonight, may this be an uplifting and encouraging time uh, for us to dive a little deeper into the things that we've heard and the things that we've talked about. In Jesus' name, amen.